You're listening to the PMO Strategies Podcast, where PMO leaders become impact drivers. This is episode 230. Well, hey there, Impact Driver. Welcome to the PMO Strategies Podcast. I am your host, Laura Bernard. PMOs started with doing projects in a good way, but that is a completely undervalued approach and leads to massive frustration. But what's better? What's the alternative? The only way to go is to bring a substantial benefit to your organization and your business leaders. And the key to doing that throughput accounting, which is based on something you'll learn a little bit about here called theory of constraints. Now, a company can grow in a sustainable way and quickly if everyone knows the constraints of the organization and the projects are selected by their strategic value divided by the constraint consumption. Okay, I know, I know. Lots of math. It might be too early for you or too late. You might be driving, you might be walking, but don't worry. I've got you. We're going to walk through this one step at a time. But when you do this, it changes everything and connects vision and strategy and execution. And the only division in a company that can detect that constraint is all of you in the PMO. And that's what makes a successful strategic success office. So we're going to dive into what it takes to get from vision to strategy to execution using throughput accounting so that you can help your organization thrive and elevate your role from the standard PMO to a strategy success office. Before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by Planisware. Let me take a moment to share why they are not just your typical project management tool. At PMO Strategies, delivering exceptional results to our clients is at the core of everything we do. And Planisware has the exact same mindset. What sets Planisware apart is their unwavering commitment to customer success. They don't just provide a program management software. They invest in building a genuine partnership with their customers, just like we do. Their solutions cover all project and portfolio use cases, and you are sure to find the right tool for your PMO. In Planisware, your achievement will be their achievement, which is what matters so much for us. Their customer-centric approach makes them a dependable partner in your PMO strategy for the long term. Visit planisware.com today and unlock your project management potential. Okay, let's dive in. We're talking all about throughput accounting, the missing link between vision, strategy, and execution. And with me today to talk about this is Wolfram Mueller, a good friend of mine and a pal and a huge supporter of the Impact Summit, the PMO Strategies Podcast, and a you know, joint rabble rouser in this space trying to change the way all of you impact drivers think about your work and how you can help your organization thrive. Now, Wolfram is a renowned speaker, author, and expert on organizational change using the theory of constraints approach. So we'll learn more about that today. He has over 25 years of experience in implementing fast, effective projects in companies ranging from startups to large corporations across industries like automotive, engineering, IT, and medical technology. Now, Wolfram's methods have helped clients all over the world increase productivity by 50% and decrease project 
timelines by 25 to 50%. And I know you're thinking there's just no way, but trust me, my friends, he's able to prove it. And he has codified that and is the co-author of a book that he wrote with my dear friend and another friend of ours. So Mike Hannon and Wolfram Mueller and Hilbert Robinson wrote a book called The CIO's Guide to Breakthrough Project Portfolio Performance, applying the best of Critical Chain, Agile, and Lean. And it is a must-have book, not just for CIOs, because guess who's behind all those CIOs making the magic happen? That's all of you, Impact Drivers. So with all of that said, Wolfram, thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to dive into this topic because this is one that people listening don't even know that they should be caring about, this throughput accounting. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Laura, for inviting me. Pleasure to be here with you. Oh, absolutely. Before we dive into all of this, tell me why this is so important to you. For me, it's important because I was once the head of a PMO of a big international internet service provider, and I went through all this suffering. So I was given all this responsibility about all the projects, and I had a first-hand experience that even if I talked about milestones, project plans, and everything that's important, my impact was not so good. And because of my missing impact, after a while, everyone did not have any fun with me anymore and no support and everything like this. So, so I really struggled hard until this moment when this throughput accounting and theory of constraint stuff came up. You know, it's really funny that you say that because, you know, as we were talking about, I'm following yours and Mike's footsteps and writing a book myself. And it has been a labor of love for a really long time. And one of the things I talk about, and there's the same thing that I say to so many PMO people when I meet them, which is, I wish I had me when I was you. You know exactly what it means if you've been in that world where it's like, oh my gosh, if I could only go back and talk to my former self that was boots on the ground, running these PMOs and strategy and transformation groups and all of that, if I could only tell myself from then what I know now, it would have been a game changer, right? But no, we had to learn everything the hard way. We had to figure out how to do all of this with making the mistakes and getting all the battle scars to prove it. And now we have the insight that we just can't keep to ourselves, right? That's what you all do at Blue Dolphin. And you've got some really cool things going on with your AI and all the things you've been doing in the industry to try and help organizations. And it's because you've lived the hard way and you know there's a better way. And I just really appreciate you for doing that in the industry. So thank you for that. But I know that means that you have a lot of really good secrets as to why PMOs fail and also what makes them successful. So if you're ready, I'd love to just dive in and address that right up front. Does that sound good? You're welcome. Let's go. All right. Okay. So you've worked with over 40 companies as you've been doing this change and transformation work. What do you think the main factor is that causes PMOs to fail? For me, the main factor is really that the PMO does not deliver real value. And it means real value to the top management. Right. And what I learned in the hard way is first I had to understand how top managers think. Yeah. So they have a vision, they have a strategy, and they are good at numbers, by the way. So I've never seen a C-level without really being good at accounting and not the cost accounting, but the good ones. They have a different way of thinking about accounting. 
And I believe now, and that is what we see in this many companies we are dealing with, that the PMOs and the middle managers do not know the way how the top managers think, and therefore they are not able to provide them with decision papers they really need. So what I learned is very often the C-levels came to me and said, oh, we have this opportunity here and we have to do it as fast as possible. And I was not able to respond in a way that they could understand. And for me, this is the main reason why PMOs fail. They do not have the accounting knowledge and cost accounting yeah. is not a good one. Really answer questions C-level needs. And in the end, the C-level needs decision papers what to prioritize. So it's all about finding the right priorities, but not telling the C-level, you have to prioritize right. because he can't. He has not all the information, but giving him information so that he obviously see what are the bottom line results and then he can decide because it's more or less obvious. Right, exactly. So I love how you were talking about value, because what I heard you say is something that I believe to be true, which is value is in the eye of the beholder, right? So when PMO people think about their value, they usually think about it in terms of how many projects they have, right? Or how many templates they have in their process, or how many steps in their process, or how many project managers. And they think that value is tied to the number of projects, building this big army of people to do all this stuff. And when in fact, they probably shouldn't have that same number of projects, right? They probably, if they're bragging that they've got hundred projects, I bet you they should probably only really be doing 50 of them, at least at one time, as you all talk about in the book, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> doing so many at one time. So there's a gap between, and I know we're going to talk about these gaps, but there's a gap between the way PMO people see their value and the way the executives see their value and the way they see value in general for the organization, right? And what matters to them. So most C-suite executives I talk to use ROI, return on investment, but it's they use loosely. It doesn't necessarily mean dollars for them. It means what I call the worth it factor. Was this worth doing in the first place, right? Yes. And I think that's a huge problem that we have is that PMO people aren't even speaking the language of the executives. And so there's this value gap in like what the executives think is important and what the PMO people do. And so there's more I even want to dig into because you're like, they don't even, they can't even make the decisions, et cetera. But first we got to get on the same page with what the executives actually want, not what you think they need, what they want. What is that value for them? So I really just wanted to like pause on that for a second and make sure that's super clear to people because that's the first gap that I usually see is that the way executives define success and value is very different than how the PMO people are defining it. So with that said, you were also saying that executives don't really necessarily have what they need to make decisions, therefore they can't prioritize. So can we talk a little bit more about prioritization and why so many leaders fail to prioritize or why it's not successful? I think there are two answers, but first you started with this ROI stuff. Right. And this is one of the biggest fails I know of. In the past, it was the only way to make decisions. And in the past, you do not have computers and you were not aware about all your numbers and stuff like this. But today you're in a different situation. And in the past, you just had to evaluate each project one by one in itself because yeah. you did not have the whole information. 
So what I want to show you is how damaging an ROI can be. So now I test you a little, Laura. So you're the head of a PMO and two executives coming and one is saying, oh, my project A is the most important. It has a contribution margin of $1 million in a year. That's cool. Right. So, and we just need 100 working days to build it. Right. So 1 million, 100 working days. And then another executive is coming, hey, I have a very cool project. It has a million dollar contribution margin one, and it just needs 50 days of effort. Right. So, wow, the ROE is twice as high, huh? So which one would you choose, A or B? So I don't have enough information to make that decision in isolation <laughs> because, because I would be saying, like just with that information, what I would be saying is, which one of these is helping us achieve our strategic goals? Which regardless of just ROI, I need to know there could be a greater ROI, but dollars aren't the only thing that matters. Which one's helping us move a needle as an organization more effectively? If I'm the CEO in this conversation, I'm asking, What's our vision? Like the whole podcast, right? Like what's the vision? What's the strategy to achieve that vision? And which one of these projects is going to help us get there? Because as a CEO, I'm doing the, like I deal with this all the time in my own company. I'm willing to invest and do something that might be financially lower ROI, but much bigger impact, right? And us achieving our goals. So that's my answer. Sorry if that throws <laughs> you off, but that's... <laughs> Okay, that's also a good answer, but but in this case, I said the uh, two executives coming to you as PMO. Yeah, leader, yeah, so. I know, and so I don't even know how to think like the PMO person anymore because I'm still the like I've been the CEO for eleven years. <laughs> so if they don't the strategic impact, then it's really everything is lost. But in this case, you can assume that they are strategically equally important. Okay, but the interesting sentence you said before is you don't have enough information. Because based on the ROI, and both are strategic important, you have to select B because it's more contribution margin per day. Yes. Exactly. If you look at one project at another. In and isolation. The yeah, in an isolation. And now the theory of constraints coming into place. And the theory of constraints is not looking at one project or one department or anything, but it's looking at the whole company. And I really can advise every PMO manager to read the Gold Red books and not mine. That's okay. But the Gold Red books, Elia Gold Red is much more important. And he's a scientist and he found out that every organization has at least exactly one constraint. If there is no constraint, the organism or the organization will grow infinite fast because it consumes all the resources without any constraint and it explodes. So that's not a good idea. Yeah, we don't want that. No constraints, very bad idea. And if you have two constraints, it, it will oscillate because they will never be exactly the same and you will get oscillations and these reduce the performance. And if you have three or more constraints, it will be chaotic and you can prove it. There are so many examples like bottles, they have a bottleneck or they have the runway. Each system you're looking at has a constraint, otherwise yeah. it won't work. Traffic getting on the highway. Mike Absolutely. always uses that example about like the metered traffic getting on the highway. If you're in a big city, a lot of times you'll see those lights that prevent the cars from getting on the highway until it turns green. And it's like one or two cars at a time. That's another perfect example of it is that they're trying to control flow, right? Yes, absolutely. And if you have five lanes and there's something they have to work on and they reduce it and in one part to three, 
it's like you create a bottleneck and then the three lanes are the relevant lanes, not the five in before or afterward. So, and that's the year of constraints. And now the two executives are coming back and you say, okay, I don't have enough information because now you can ask a, okay, from the 100 days, how many days are in the constraint? And he will say, oh, that's easy. It's a similar product. It's very easy to do. It's 10 days in the constraint. Wow. And then the other executive say, oh, my 50 days, 40 out of the 50 are in the constraint. And now it looks completely different, the picture. So if you have a constraint, then the capacity of the constraint determines the throughput, like the lanes on the highway. Okay. So that means like 50 miles of, like, let's say it's of the 50 mile project, 40 of them are a bottleneck down to one lane versus you have a hundred miles, but only like 10, what do we say? 10 of that is bottlenecked down. 10 miles of that is bottlenecked down to one lane. You're going to get faster flow on the longer one than you would in the shorter one. Is that what you're saying? Close? <laughs> Close. I would name it a little different. I would say it a little different if you have a part where you just have three lanes or one lane, then you look what to put through and lorry with a lot of value uh, stuff in. Yeah, I see. It's more interesting than five cars uh, that are just cars and just five peoples. So it's more looking at the value, the strategic value. Defining value, yeah. Divided by the consumption of the constraint. And now the priority scheme changes. So okay. you, you select the project that are strategically relevant, have a high contribution margin with low constraint consumption. If you sort the project list by this order, then you do not just the most strategic relevant stuff on top, but all those strategic relevant stuff that consumes the minimal constraint capacity. So you can do more of this cool stuff. Okay. And the interesting part is if you stop letting in projects when the constraint is full, because it's a constraint, everyone else in the organization is not fully loaded and can support the constraint. Okay. So what is the constraint in this case? What are some examples? So for people that are trying to learn this and they might be driving or exercising and they're like, wait a minute, I got to go write this down. So in these examples, what is the constraint that people are managing around? So, and now you're at the core of all questions. Okay. I answer completely different. I give you examples right away, but the only one in an organization that can find out where the constraint is, the PMO. And that's the key for the value generation of the PMO, okay. because otherwise you don't need a PMO. If everyone knows it, don't care about a PMO, in the end, the final instance can find a constraint. So examples of a constraint. We already have a few. The airport with a runway. Another one is, of course, a production line. If you have a production line, then you have one workstation that is working with the least capacity or slowest. This workstation determines everything. So, and now it's getting interesting. In projects, you sometimes have a team like quality assurance or bringing something into production. But it's not so clear because the problem in knowledge work is that every project is different. It has a different need of resources. So it's very complex. One thing is very sure in projects is that you know where the problems occur in projects. 
and they occur in the beginning yeah. and in the end. So these phases mm -hmm. in a project must be somehow critical. And if you get real problems in a project, you don't need the junior staff. You need typically the long-term experienced guys. You don't know who. And very often you need decision makers. Right. So our assumption is, and it never failed to prove this, if a project comes in, in this first early phase where you look at the demand, what the customer wants, and how to deliver it, so do the rough planning in the beginning, that's a very critical phase. If you go into IT, this is often combined with architecture, usability, business analysis and stuff like this. So, so you need a lot of people talking together, find an idea how the project can be done. And then you have the project plan. Everyone can work more or less independently. And each time something's coming together and in the end of a project, everything is coming together. Then you put all the puzzle pieces right. together. And then you see where it doesn't fit. But you just see that it doesn't fit. Then you need, again, the experts. So we currently think, and it's really proved about a lot of companies, that this collaborative work of the senior staff and decision makers to find good solutions or problems, solutions for problems, this is a bottleneck. Most project organizations. So a very simple example would be like a unique subject matter expert that you've only got one woman in the company that knows this stuff. And a lot of the projects have to go through her and she has to provide her input on those. That subject matter expert becomes the constraint, the bottleneck on these projects. That is the worst possible situation I've ever seen. And I've never seen it. I've never seen this situation. Really? No, never ever. Because there's always someone beside this woman or man who knows enough to support him. So if you really have this expert, then typically around him, there are not so experienced ones. And yeah. he can explain the not so experienced ones what he has to do and check the results. So that's not a net constraint. So I'm a constraint in my own company. I know I'm a constraint in my own company because I have a lot of knowledge in my head that I'm trying to give to other people, but I can't give it to them fast enough to keep certain projects going. So like I have figured out how to clone myself for the most part on the consulting side of the business, but there's a lot of things that I've built in this business from when it was just me, a one woman show to you know, a much bigger organization now and all the people that we keep adding and we can't add people fast enough. And they keep saying, but we need to extract all the information out of your head, right? Like we're doing, whenever we do our big impact summit, for example, like it started with just me. And then it was, I borrowed my husband for a while who had just retired from a current, being a colonel in the army. And I'm like, oh, please come help me. You know, like a year later, he's like, all right, I'm done. I'm quitting. But, you know, and so every time I kept building more people to like take stuff out of my head, but it seems like I'm still the one with a lot of the knowledge, right? So I feel like I'm a constraint in my own company. It's getting better. And I keep trying to give knowledge to other people, but I have seen, I'm just using that as an example, but I have seen subject matter experts in organizations where they're like, they're the only one that knows things. And we quickly realize we've got to clone them as fast as possible, right? Laura, perfect, fine. How many people are you in your company group right now? Well, on the operations side, we're about 10 of us. Okay. Yeah. So, and I'm very often talking about companies with thousands That are of much bigger people, right? Much bigger. So we are typically talking 200 upwards. And there, yeah. you can't afford to have such You can't be the one like person, it. right? So we've helped companies as small as 12 people that have this problem to companies that are like 
tens of thousands that still seem to find themselves having this problem, right? So I think this is a universal problem. Yeah, fine with it. And I think we just talk about different layers of abstraction. So you're right. We see companies with more than one constraint. We see companies with experts. Lots of them. We see all this stupid stuff. But the problem is exactly PMO does not know the, the biggest value. And for me, the biggest impact you can have as a PMO is identifying. And first you start with subject matter experts. Right. And then you find ways, as you do in your company, to lever their knowledge. Then you are rid of all the subject matter experts. The next thing is you have a team like quality assurance. That's always a constraint or testing or something like that. Then the PMO identifies this bottlenecks one by one. They're the only ones that can do that, right? They are the only ones because they see all projects. They see all resources. They have the full list. They are the only ones who see everything. And they are the only ones who have the knowledge about the strategy. They talk with the executives. They know what's important. They know the growth plan. They know the goal. So they are the only one who can identify. And then step by step, you walk up ladder. First start with experts. Not get rid of them. No, no, no. They are very yeah. important. <laughs> you clone them. The next level is teams. Then the next level is this collaboration, creative work. And if you solve this, the next level is market. Then you're really in an impact situation because then the PMO help that there is no inner constraint anymore in the company. There's no inner constraint. So every idea the market has can be done. And then you just have strategic decisions. You just solely have strategic, which market to go, which product. These are solely strategic decisions. And then the project management office is exactly, he did everything important for the top managers because now the top managers do not have to talk about details or planning and all this stuff or red projects. And they do not have fun to talk about this. Right. After identifying constraint after constraint and throughput accounting is just the, the math behind, as you said. Then right. you are finally a real impact driver. My gosh, you said my love language. Then you're finally an impact driver. I love that you call it this strategic success office. Mm-hmm. So I like this concept. I think, you know, when we go in and work with executives, a lot of times our clients, they bring us in one because they think they have a PMO or a project management problem. And then very quickly, we help them realize that that's probably not the problem. Because I always tell them, like, if it was a project management problem, you would have solved it by now. This is obviously something more than that, right? You know that world we live in. And when we work with our executives and we are building a new organization, we ask the C-suite what they want to call it. And we brainstorm and we give them some suggestions. And, you know, they never say PMO. They say most of them end up with something more like strategy delivery office or like you say, strategic success office. So can you talk to me about this as we kind of wrap up here? Like how could an organization, how could this the PMO people that are listening position themselves to be kind of a right hand to the C-suite with this strategic success office? What would that look like? Okay, I tell a little story when I was uh, responsible for the project management office of one and one. Yep. We sit together with C-suite every week and we really struggled to find this constraint. And so we knew something's wrong. We build up resources every year, 25%, but the output was not good enough. So we knew that something's wrong and we really struggled and we discussed every time. 
And at some point in time, I said, okay, we need a priority from one to whatever. And this priority is right for everything. And we did it. So it was very easy to find this priority. But after a week, everything changed something. So yeah. new projects came in. And then really the C-suite was sitting before me. I was, I was just the head of PM. They were sitting before me and nearly not crying, but really frustrated. Frustrated, hey, yeah. I know what you want, a priority, and we need the priority, but we are not able to find the right place where this new project has to put in. Yeah. We, are, we are simply do not know it. Can you help us? Oh, and then I was frustrated and I went home. And that was for me the eureka moment. Then I understood they are really struggling finding the right position of the project. So, and that's, they needed for their success so they can say what they want. Right. They have the strategic view, but they can't say the order. And that was for me the key moment. And then we went back in the PMO and we found out this throughput accounting stuff. And after that, it was very easy. So they said what they want. They explained why. And we could say, okay, if you want it at this point, uh, you have to move this project. And everything right. was clear. And then they took decisions that were excellent. Mm -hmm. And then they asked me about this decision papers. And then I was valued. And then I had the full support of the board members. Because they saw the PMO as the key for their success. Yes, the strategic success office. That makes perfect sense. I yeah, love it. So, so, so easy in the end. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. So with a lot of this stuff, I really feel like PMO people make it too hard, right? Like I teach them the impact engine system and what will be in the book, you know, in this course and coaching program we have is all about like the first thing we tell them to do is we take them through the process to find and deliver their MVP. One thing, fix one thing. So, you know, for many of the executives, they don't even have a list of their projects. So give them a list of the projects, right? You can't prioritize if they don't even know what's happening in the organization, right? And you got to fix that problem. And this is, but what if they have a list of projects and you're trying to get them to prioritize and they can't, this might be the answer to that. Is this constant put accounting, finding that constraint or constraints and what is preventing them from moving forward in the best flow to get to the best overall portfolio level, actual impact, as opposed to just project by project level. And maybe one last sentence, if you have this constraint and if you know where it is, and it's not always easy to find, but yeah. therefore there are cool guys around on the world and you named a few, but if you have the constraint, it's everything gets easy because all the lists of the projects, it's like a string of pearls. Yeah. So you have the constraint and in the constraint, there's one after another. Maybe you have two in parallel. Everything gets very, very clear and simple. And if you have the business value, the strategic value and the consumption, then you know also the order of the pearls. Yeah. So it's very easy to find the right order. You have one string of pearls and then it's for the C-levels very easy to decide so they can easily say, okay, this new stuff is value like this, and it has to have this position. And if you do not overload the constraint, all the other resource problems, they are non-existent. Because if you don't overload the constraint, nothing else is overloaded. So all your resource management is very easy. Yeah, the problem, every PMO person says that they have a resource management problem, and that's probably not it. 
they probably have a throughput accounting and a constraints problem that they need to address. And once do, everything else becomes easier. Everything else is so easy. And oh, that good. was a moment when I loved to be head of PMO. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. It's like, this is what it should feel like. You should feel like you're running a strategic success office. I love it. Okay. So I know we're out of time, but I want to make sure that people know that they can go find your book. And by the way, in PMO Strategies, Mike works with us. So we get to like pull him into all the clients that need this problem solved. So the book is called The CIO's Guide to Breakthrough Project Portfolio Performance, Applying the Best of Critical Chain, Agile, and Lean which is by all my pals, Mike Hannon, Wolfram Mueller, and Hilbert Robinson. I uh, love all of you guys so much. So where else, where can people find you, Wolfram? How do they engage with you? The most easiest way is remember the blue dolphin. The URL is blue-dolphin.world. So and there you find me or on LinkedIn or LinkedIn in the internet. Sure. Everywhere a blue yes, dolphin is exactly. the key. And you'll be able to go to this episode and we will have a link to all of your resources and support. And I just want to thank you for being here. Thank you for being a part of this episode. Thank you for your continued support of the Impact Summit and everything else you do to help make the world a better place, one project at a time. Thank you a lot for the invitation. Absolutely. All right, Impact Driver, then you've heard it here. If you want to create a strategic success office, you need to learn, understand, throughput accounting, find those constraints and help your executives make better decisions so that you can create that flow and drive even higher impact in your organization. Bye-bye for now.